Welcome to the Art of Being a Mum podcast, where I, Alison Newman, a singer, songwriter and Aussie mum of two, enjoys honest and inspiring conversations with artists and creators about the joys and issues they've encountered while trying to be a mum and continue to create. You'll hear themes like the mental juggle, changes in identity, how their work's been influenced by motherhood, mum guilt, cultural norms, and we also stray into territory such as the patriarchy, feminism, and capitalism. You can find links to my guests and topics we discuss in the show notes, along with a link to the music played, how to get in touch, and a link to join our supportive and lively community on Instagram. I'll always put a trigger warning if we discuss sensitive topics on the podcast, but if at any time you're concerned about your mental health, I urge you to talk to those around you, reach out to health professionals or seek out resources online. I've compiled a list of international resources which can be accessed on the podcast landing page, alisonnewman.net slash podcast. The Art of Being a Mum would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and water which this podcast is recorded on as being the Boendick people in the Berrin region of South Australia. I'm working on land that was never ceded. Thank you so much for tuning in today. It is lovely to welcome you into my studio here in Mount Gambier in South Australia. As I'm recording this today, it's a beautiful 22 degrees Celsius outside that's about 70 in Fahrenheit. The sun is shining, there's a light breeze, there's not a cloud in the sky and you can probably hear the birds are singing. I thought I'd leave my window open and give you a little taste what it feels like to be in my part of the world. Today I'm welcoming Rebecca McMartin to the podcast. Rebecca is a podcaster and digital creator based in Sydney, Australia, but she sees herself first and foremost as a storyteller and mum of a little boy nicknamed Pudge. Rebecca was always drawn to reading and writing as a creative and therapeutic outlet and studied several creative writing and journalism courses in the hopes of pursuing her passion. Ultimately, she gave up this pursuit due to the fear of not being creative or being good enough. Following an acute mental health crisis when her son was born, Rebecca returned to writing as a way to process her pain and grief. It was from this experience that she decided to harness the power of storytelling and start Perinatal Stories Australia, a podcast, blog and social media platform for Australian women to share their lived experiences with perinatal mental ill health, which she works on between motherhood moments. Through holding space for these vulnerable conversations, Rebecca hopes to increase awareness, to advocate for maternal mental health causes to reduce stigma, to inform listeners about the support services available, to improve mental health literacy and to make sure no mother feels alone in her struggles. Please be aware this episode contains mentions of many mental health disorders including anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, panic attacks as well as birth trauma and grief. Thanks again for tuning in. It really is such a pleasure to welcome you. Thank you so much for coming on, Rebecca. This is a real pleasure to meet you and to speak to you today. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I think I followed your podcast for a while now. So I felt very like privileged when you like sent me a message saying if I'd like to come on. And I was like, yes, yes, please. Oh, <laughs> that's lovely to hear. Thank you. 
Oh dear. So you're in Sydney. Yeah. Um, what's it like up there today? Is it is it Irish? It's disgustingly hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I can't complain. It's been terrible weather all year. Up until about a week ago, it started to feel like summer finally. So I guess mm-hmm. you know, you get what you wish for. And like we've been the same. It's just we've had no sort of just nice average weather. It's been raining, Extremes. it's been cold. Yep. Or then we get 39. So it's like, uh, <laughs> I said, I can't wait till it gets hot. And then we can start whinging about how hot exactly, it is. Exactly, exactly. I need oh, something okay. new to whinge about, you know? Yes, that's right, <laughs> isn't it? So you're a mum and you're yes. a podcaster. You've been very active on your social media, sharing your your story and your journey with your perinatal stories, Australia. Can mm. you can you tell us all about that and what inspired you to start that whole experience for people? I mean, you know, perinatal stories Australia. It's a it's a platform really to share stories about perinatal mental health. You know what we go through. I mean, yes, there's contentious arguments in the community about whether perinatal anxiety or depression are actually different from non-perinatal anxiety or depression. I feel like it is. And mm-hmm. I felt like we needed a space to talk about that, to share stories about that, because going through mental illness itself is hard enough. Going through it as a mum during pregnancy and or postpartum is just on another level. And that all came about you know, I've had a history with anxiety, I've had a history with depression, and I, you know, naively thought that, you know, if this does happen to me postpartum, then, you know, I've gone through it before, I'll get through it again, it'll be right. But, you know, as we learn, it it doesn't discriminate. You can be a psychologist, a social worker, you could be a doctor, you could have all this experience and personal history or knowledge of mental health or mental ill health. And, it can still hit us like a ton of bricks. And that's what happened to me. I I guess I was in denial about how anxious I was during my pregnancy. And, you know, I was so focused on postpartum and wanting to control my postpartum in order to protect myself from depression or anxiety or psychosis, which I'd learned about during pregnancy and it scared the absolute shit out of me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was in denial about the fact that my anxiety was really there in pregnancy and it was getting worse and worse and worse. At the start, I kind of kind of brushed it off because, you know, I could still go to work. I was still functioning. So therefore it was okay. You know, mm-hmm. we tell ourselves those things and, mm-hmm. you know, it's fine. And it'll be fine when, he, you know, my baby's here. It's just hormones, you know. Yeah. We go yeah. through that. We dismiss ourselves. And my anxiety just got worse and worse to the point that I wasn't leaving the house. And I know that's such a stereotype, but I was having panic attacks every day. And I, I developed this fear of birth, which became pathological. And even I was dismissing myself, like, oh, everyone's scared of birth. And I'd taken all the classes, you know, all the calm mm-hmm. birth classes and wanting to be prepared. And I was originally feeling confident about birth. Yeah. And then I wasn't. Then I was just convinced I was going to die. And so that anxiety just took hold. I couldn't move. (laughs) I couldn't go to work without bursting into tears, couldn't leave the house, couldn't make decisions. Mm -hmm. And it just, the closer and closer it got to birth, the more and more it felt like I'm getting closer and closer to death. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that just became obviously a very horrible, horrible experience. But again, I just kept thinking, oh, when he's here, when the birth's over, it'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. Obviously doesn't happen. You know, we, I mean, mental illness in pregnancy is so underdiagnosed mm. and so brushed off because we're so focused on postpartum. Yep. And, you know, unfortunately, if you don't treat it in pregnancy, it actually gets worse in postpartum. Like, mm. you know, they're a shock to me, but I'm sure a shock to a lot of people. I've spoken to a lot of mothers who said the same thing. Yeah. You know, it popped up in pregnancy, but, oh, it's hormones, it'll get better. And mm. it doesn't because you're then thrown into this whole new situation with a whole new human who you have to, you know, you have to look after them so that they can survive. And mm. yeah. yeah, unfortunately for me, I, I, well, unfortunately, but I, I ended up booking a planned cesarean because mm. I just, the thought of going through labor and not panicking, I just couldn't see myself doing that. And, you know, I guess yeah. the C-section wasn't exactly a walk in the park. I wasn't looking forward to that either, mm. but yeah. there was yeah. a bit more certainty and a bit more control. And the thought of, going through labor and ending up in an emergency section anyway, because I wasn't able to control my anxiety. Mm-hmm. I made that decision and, you know, it made being me and, you know, your coping skills, you think, okay, if that's something that you're scared of, you just kind of tune it out a little bit. Mm. And so I was in the surgery and I, I was in the room. My mind wasn't in the room and you know, that led to something that I wasn't expecting, which was actually birth trauma. Um, mm-hmm. I did get diagnosed with postpartum PTSD um, from that. I think that dissociation. Um, so, yeah, that, that took me by surprise because in theory, on paper, I had a very textbook birth. I lost minimal blood. Everything was okay. Everyone was so lovely too. My obstetrician, the midwives. Mm-hmm. I was even allowed my social worker in that room because everyone in that room knew how anxious I was mm-hmm. and they were doing everything to make sure I was comfortable and safe and okay. But I was still so scared. Yeah. And that anxiety in late pregnancy just obviously manifested and became crisis point within a few days of my son's birth so I couldn't sleep Mm -hmm. anytime I tried to close my eyes I would I would have nightmares and it would just jolt me you know so for Mm -hmm. days I was having like red flashing firework scary images in front of my eyes and I Mm -hmm. was petrified so I was already anxious (laughs) in pregnancy this then just scared the shit of me obviously um you know and then you've got a baby to look after and Mm -hmm. I developed um well, I learned that I had OCD my whole life, but it was very mild. Mm-hmm. Um, it then obviously became a bit more acute at this point in time. Everything just kind of bubbled up. It was, you know, the anxiety went full crisis mode. There was the PTSD. There was rapid onset of OCD. There was a lot going on. And within a few days of my son's birth, um, we were admitted to a mother and baby psychiatric hospital because I was so distressed and I wasn't yeah. sleeping. And yeah, that's obviously not the story I thought I'd tell about my own motherhood. That's not the story, you know, here I am thinking, oh, I've had experience with mental ill health. You know, I can see my psychologist, you know, I've got skills. All of that went out the window Mm. and I was absolutely at rock bottom. And, you know, this is someone 
me who is comfortable talking about my mental health, who's had that experience. I can only imagine going through that. And you haven't seen a psychologist before. You haven't, I didn't even know that there were psychiatric hospitals and I especially didn't know that there were any for mothers and babies. This was all intimidating as well. So I mean, that turned out to be the best thing I've ever done in my life. Obviously at the time, I didn't think that I was I was terrified because this just felt like another thing I'd failed or, you know, I was crazy. I was broken. I had no reason to be there. You know, there are women who are single parents or they've gone through a very traumatic birth or they've, you know, they're victims of domestic violence or for whatever reason, Mm. I thought, you know what, I'm coming from a place of privilege. I shouldn't be feeling this. I must be broken. I must be crazy. You know, You, you kind of say things to yourself like, well, someone else has a better reason for this. It's clearly I'm just broken you know and yeah yeah we look for those reasons and when we can't find it we then blame ourselves even more Mm. you know which is ridiculous isn't it because there's we have absolutely no control no no. control whatsoever on how on all of this stuff yeah Yeah. and yeah sure you know maybe if my anxiety had been managed better in pregnancy and you know the hormones you know maybe there was something more we could do but at the end of the day it Mm. doesn't discriminate it's in oh, my yeah. psychopathy or my psychology or, you know, it, it just, it was going to happen. And I think a lot of people had to validate that for me is that, you know, with your history, something like this was going to happen. Maybe not mm. to this extent, it obviously just snowballed out of control, but, you know, and how lucky am I that I was able to go to that mother baby unit? I, I say oh, this yeah. a lot, but I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. Mm. you know my son and I were allowed to be admitted together that's the whole point you know the mother gets treated while still prioritizing that mother baby diet making sure you know mum and baba together and I my heart breaks for women who have to go to you know the emergency department and they're separated Mm. from their bub for days or weeks and you know they're in a place where they can't have visitors and I mean this was in the Mm. middle of COVID lockdown in Sydney as well so I was lucky my husband was able to stay as well because you know they prioritize that family unit we were locked in this little hospital but again being a mum in a general you know a public hospital private whatever with an emergency department in that psych unit not being allowed visitors your phone's taken off you kind of thing Mm. I just my heart breaks and like I said I am so lucky so fortunate that I was able to attend the only one in New South Wales at that time. You know, that's, I guess that's, to answer your question, that's where Perinatal Stories Australia came out because like I said, this wasn't the story of motherhood I was expecting. And Mm. despite my knowledge and my experience, this all took me by surprise. And there was so much that I learned about mental health, specifically maternal mental health. And I just thought, we don't talk about this. Mm. You know, it wasn't until I started talking to, you know, family extended friends that people were like, yeah, my sister's been there. Oh, yeah, my auntie went to that hospital. And people knew about it, but we don't talk about it. And what a disservice we're doing to mothers by not talking openly about this, by maybe, you know, they we then feel ashamed. Like, Mm. I'm clearly broken. I had to go to a psychiatric hospital. I'll never talk about this in my life. And I thought... Mm. 
I don't, I don't want that. I don't want this to just be a bad memory. I want to do something with it. I want to tell these stories, my own and other women's, so that there are mums out there potentially going through this who don't think they're broken. <laughs> they mm. don't think they're alone and that they can potentially learn about some of the options available. You know, when you're yeah. in that moment or that moment, that, you know, that yeah, crisis yeah. point, you feel like there is no help, hope. There is no help. Yeah. There is nothing that'll save you. And to know that, you know, it's not just necessarily going to a counsellor. It could be antidepressants. It could be um, a psychiatric hospital. It could be seeing a social worker. It could be there is an occupational therapist. There are so many different pathways to receiving help or a combination of all of these. Or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. whether you go down the line of potentially doing therapy like um, the eye movement desensitized. Asian oh, yeah. and reprocessing so EMDR whether you do that or whether you go down the line of TMS so the transcranial magnetic um well, yeah there's yeah, so, yeah blah, blah, blah. I don't I don't know the acronym at the top of my head <laughs> but there are so many options and they sound scary but then when you actually talk to women and hear their experience of it it becomes less less foreign and you mm. start to feel a little bit more of that hope so that was my goal that was my goal with the podcast and it took me it's taken me a year now to actually release the episodes I only released my first episode six weeks ago but I'd been thinking about it and working on the social media stuff and just trying to I guess build that community but also feel a little bit more confident because I have no idea what I'm doing let's be honest I'm not a podcast I still don't see myself as that I don't see myself as a creative so that in itself is something I'm still trying to negotiate with myself (laughs) so yeah Yeah. you know me being me I want to be great at what I do so I didn't want to release an episode like you know I had to build it up and had to learn and I had to teach myself because I didn't want to get too you know excited I wanted to make sure I did it right yeah yeah Yeah. I worked on the social media stuff just as a little as a starting point so that was a space and it still is you know for advocacy for raising awareness for education for sharing some parts of my story some of those personal bits and pieces and now obviously that the podcast been released I'm sharing the stories of those mums who've gone through that Mm. which is phenomenal and I'm so grateful that they've been open and honest about those experiences because the amount of women who have messaged saying you know I didn't know that this was an option. I, or I've gone and booked in to see my doctor. I'm actually going to ask for help now. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. Sorry. I just get shivers up I my know. spine. It, it just. Yes. I could totally resonate with that. I think that's just the, the way I sort of see it is like, not everybody's capable of sharing no. and, that, and that's fine. So that's I think totally the people, okay. The people that are, I sort of mm. feel like it's, it's your, I don't know what the word is. You're not obliged to do it, but if you can do it, do it because it just helps so many people and you have no idea. Like you said, until people talk about it, you don't know who in your life that you already know or have met that has had experiences similar or can learn from your experiences. Like you were saying about people go, oh, jeepers, that's raised something in me. I'm going to do something about it. It's so powerful. And I just think like good on you because it is vulnerable to share.
what is the definition of the perinatal time? Time period. So perinatal is um, pregnancy to a year postpartum. Technically, that is the medical definition. I'm of the opinion and with some other people I've met on Instagram that, you know, it could also be preconception. You know, if you're going through infertility or loss, that doesn't discount. It's not that you shouldn't be included because you don't technically meet that pregnancy and postpartum one year definition. I I still include it. Mm. Um, But I mean, on a technicality, it is that time period between pregnancy and one year postpartum and that's when you are most vulnerable to a mental illness as a woman you are never more vulnerable than in that time period in your life Mm. yeah talked about having being able to go to the hospital to admit yourself and your baby I didn't know those places existed either when I went through my experience with my second child I was offered to be admitted to hospital but it would have meant that it was only for me and not baby so I chose not to go um, because I felt that it was more important for me to be with my child because I actually had this feeling that he was going to help me heal I just had this really I don't know what it was a feeling that yeah. uh, I had to keep him close to me. And I think that's what did help me get through it. Um, mm. Whereas with my first child, I was always pushing him away and pushing him yeah. away. Um, and that's the thing too. I think even though we do have these these mental health issues, uh, it can be so different with um, the, each child that you have. Exactly. Um, which is was my experience. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird, weird thing, the brain and the way our bodies work. So when I want to go back to when you were pregnant yeah, and you talked about having your, you said it was your social worker, I think. Yeah. Um, so you had support during your pregnancy. I did. So me being me and wanting to be in control and prepare for postpartum, mm-hmm. I did go through a very informal postpartum planning. It was my way of being in control. And really it was just a symptom of my anxiety, but it worked <laughs> out well in the sense that I'd, I'd reached out to Gidget Foundation, so Gidget House. Um, they have their free um, talk therapy um, during pregnancy and postpartum. So I reached out and I got on the wait list for that and I was able to speak to a psychologist throughout my pregnancy and postpartum, one who was obviously well-versed in maternal mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and through my obstetrician, she was phenomenal. I know so many people have not so great experiences. I had... I had a wonderful one who was constantly checking in on my mental health and okay so at the hospital I gave birth she referred me to the social worker so it's an obstetric social worker who's part of the hospital my OB referred me through there just just to make sure that I had like a safety net just in case and so I went to speak to that social worker just once give her a rundown of my history it wasn't until we got closer to birth that I was scared of the birth that my OB coordinated with her to be present yeah at the time of the birth 
Yeah. Um, and then obviously she became such a key part in my postpartum, my early postpartum while I was at hospital having that acute episode. She was the one who got me into the mother and baby unit, which I didn't even know existed. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I had that safety net in a way, which, mm-hmm. you know, again, I cannot imagine where I would be. I, I know where I'd be. I don't want to imagine it. But yeah, I, yeah. Um, if it weren't for her or even my OB to actually put me in contact with her, someone mm. who knows maternal mental health and knows the services and support systems that are available to catch you when you fall. Mm. So, yeah, look, it's uh, when I was saying before, I'm from Mount Gambia, we're a small town. Mm. I mean, they say we're, a, we're the second largest city and I say city in inverted commas yeah. because we're not a city. We're, we're a large country town. Second largest outside of Adelaide, like in South mm. Australia, which is quite scary. I mean, South <laughs> Australia is yeah. a, I don't know. No. You, you can't compare the capital no. city of South Australia to any other capital city. No. Um, which is quite a nice in a way. It um, is, yeah. But, um, yeah, I had no idea what services we had or didn't have. I just mm. presumed we, we didn't have anything down here. And it wasn't until that I needed them that all of mm. a sudden you discover all this stuff. And I sort of, I didn't have... When, with my first child, um, I I was sort of diagnosed um, after the fact uh, a few years yeah. later of having postnatal depression because I basically slipped through the cracks because I wasn't giving them the answers that they needed for the tick-off yeah. checklist, basically. Mm-hmm. I didn't fit the criteria. And yeah. unfortunately, there was, wasn't the, you know, the services or the right people at the right time to, to go ask actually the right questions girl well. is really struggling and it's not just because basically I was trying to justify it I was like oh I'm just of having course. a bad day you know I just haven't had a lot of sleep I was in complete denial and it was my husband that said to me I think you've got that thing that they talked about it in <laughs> antenatal class I'm like no I don't I've just you know it's just just a crap day but yeah. uh it wasn't just a crap day and it was really funny a few years later not funny, but you know, ironic, amusing. Yeah. When mm. um, my gynecologist, who I was, I, I kept saying, you know, between my babies because I was having my arena and then having that removed and all that, and and he he said, oh yeah, sounds like you had some um, postnatal depression. Oh, that that's something that could have been solved with one one tablet a day. And I just went, oh for God's sake, like <laughs> just the. I don't know. It was not that he was belittling. It was basically no. saying we could have fixed that. We could have we helped could have you, actually but nobody helped, yeah. realized, no. you know? Um, yeah. And so then it was really good when I had my second child, um, like you were saying about having things in place. Mine was a little different because yeah. um, I don't know, it was seven years between my children and I had this idea that I was going to be fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. Complete denial again. Yeah. And um, when I was pregnant, because I don't know, my pregnancy hormones kept me right up here. I was cracking mm-hmm. along. Everything was great. I was journaling about all the things I'd do differently and everything was going to be different. And um, when I got into the hospital, they, they'd they sort of red flagged my file, um, you know, watch out for this one sort of thing, <laughs> which was the best thing they ever did. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. When, it, when it happened, things moved really quickly and really in the right, you know, everyone knew what had to be done. Um because it did happen, it happened mm. about not even made it to three days yeah, exactly. after I had him. It just went bang, and I um I also had a very traumatic birth and um and got diagnosed with PTSD from the birth. But the whole birth trauma thing was a new thing because it wasn't till years after that I actually realised that that's what it was, mm. um, and that was just through social media following particular people and just went, 
Oh, I think that's what happened to me. And then um, I'd been back seeing um, my my counsellor, um, like for therapy and stuff. And um, I talked to her about it. And when I, when I was retelling her my birth story, um, and she said, "Oh, yeah, don't want to diagnose you with something else, but yeah, you you've got P- PTSD, and um, that's yeah. birth trauma." And I just sort of laughed, like, "Oh well, just add it to the list." Just you another know. thing to add, yeah. Oh God. <laughs> It's the weirdest thing. You just, some people just, you know, breeze through it. Everything's great. Everything's fine. And you sort of think like, I don't know, did you have an experience where, you know, you talked about not having the ideal birth and mm. did you ever feel like you've missed out? Did you ever feel oh, completely. Like, like almost jealous of other people that have got to have certain things? I went through a grieving process mm-hmm. um, and that grieving process actually lasted longer than that acute episode I was in hospital. So I was in hospital until my son was six weeks old. Um, mm-hmm. That's when we were discharged the day after he turned six weeks old. Yeah. And obviously things weren't great, but I wasn't in that acute crisis state. I was back to maybe mild, moderate. And then, you know, mm-hmm. once you're out of that distressed state, you can then work on therapy and all the skills that you had, you know, yeah. that then starts to kick in. Yeah. But then the grief hit until maybe my son was about six months old and you know I would my one of my friends had her baby boy so I have a son so she had a baby boy about three months after I did Mm -hmm. and you know she had the vaginal birth she had the breastfeeding journey that I I didn't um and yes that's not to dismiss how hard motherhood is but she had that newborn bubble and I I cried it <laughs> to put it bluntly um yeah. it felt like my heart broke into a million pieces because I just thought how much mental illness took away mm. you know not just yeah. what I wanted but it, it took away that newborn bubble that breastfeeding experience you know the bonding that we're told breastfeeding provides us it mm. took away moments that I would never ever get back those first six weeks of my son's life I would never get those back and it took up until he was six months old for me to reconcile with that and to yeah come to a place where I you know no matter how much I wanted to I couldn't change what had happened so in that Mm. up until he was six months old that grieving process I then reached start I then wanted to re-establish breastfeeding and try relactating so I tried so hard at that Um, I, you know, I had the approval of, you know, the community nurse and the, my psychologist, psychiatrist, because they said, okay, you're in a different headspace, but I was still grieving. And in my head, reestablishing breastfeeding was my way of wanting to get back the time that I had lost. Because in, I just clung to breastfeeding as the answer to my problems Mm. and it didn't work, which I knew it wouldn't work probably for a few months. I was, you know, you have to pump like seven times a day, 10 minutes each time, you know, it is just not happening when you've got a, an infant and you're feeding, you know, playing, changing, bathing, all of this, you know, and you need to eat yourself. And so it just wasn't happening, but I clung to it. And it wasn't until six months postpartum that I just realized that even if it did work, even if I was able to reestablish breastfeeding, 
there was nothing that would change what had happened. Mm -hmm. There was nothing I could do to get that time back, even if it magically worked and I was breastfeeding and we could enjoy this current time in this sense through breastfeeding, those six weeks weren't coming back. Mm -hmm. And I needed to make peace with that. And that grief was, that. like I said, it lasted a lot longer than even the acute episode. And it was consuming. It it did. Uh, Grief made me you know, suffer more than probably (laughs) I already was. But yeah, yeah, there was that jealousy and there was that just, I I mean, I call it grief because it just, I wanted so badly what they had. Not that I wanted to take it away from them, but I just wish I got that. And and I mean, it's still even with me. Um, One of my other friends had her beautiful baby girl about six weeks ago. And, you know, I didn't cry for a solid two months straight this time. I cried for a couple of hours, but yeah. That just, yeah, it it still hits mm. you and you still think, what did I miss out on? You mm. know, the last bit of my pregnancy that, you know, you convince yourself you're not capable or you can't function and your anxiety is just in control. And, yeah. you know, you just wish you were strong enough, I guess. I'm going to use that in quotes to yeah. overcome your anxiety and be brave. You know, all that positivity. You know, you wish you could oh. just... Think it, think your way out of it, and yeah, just... have, have some positive affirmations. Yeah. That'll, that'll help you. Oh. And it doesn't, but you <laughs> no. still hold on to that. You know, yeah. you still think, God, I wish I could have just. I wish I wasn't controlled by my anxiety, or I wish mm. I wasn't controlled by my mental health. And because of that, I missed out on some of the experience I wanted. And it's not my fault; it is an illness, yeah. but it still hurts. It hurts like hell, and. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, I didn't, like with my friend who had her boy at three months, when I was three months postpartum, I cried every single day for hours and hours and hours a day for maybe two, three months. This time it was only a few hours, but, you know, that grief is, mental illness takes away a lot from us, Mm. you know, and especially as a mum, you miss out on, on so much and your kids grow so quickly and Mm -hmm. in that six weeks I wasn't getting that time back you know and that's still something that eats away and sits with you and Mm. I don't know if it'll ever not eat away at me but yeah you know and that's okay that's okay I'm allowed to grieve that (laughs) you know it's getting easier but yeah absolutely You said how mental illness takes so much away. Is that what makes you really passionate about sharing your story? It's like you can you can take this thing that's been so destroying and mm. and turn it into something. I don't want to say positive because that makes it sound like <laughs> I know. a cliche, but you know what I mean. Like to sort of say, okay, so this has happened. This has been really shit, really really bad. Mm. Um, but the silver lining is that maybe I can help someone else. Maybe I can. Yeah. You know, has that been a factor in? I think so but I think this was also my way of processing the grief and owning my story 
Mm-hmm. You know, this was a story, like I said, I this is not the story I want to be telling about motherhood. I wish I had a very different story to be sharing. Mm-hmm. I wish I had the stories that my friends were sharing about their births and their newborn bubbles. And yeah, I wish I had that, but this is my way of owning it. This is my yeah. way of acknowledging that I can't change those six weeks. Yeah. And that's, and it's hard, mm-hmm. but yeah. I'm owning it. And by doing this, by sharing my story, it's actually my way of processing my own bullshit, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> processing yeah. my own grief and actually acknowledging, well, this did happen. And I can, you know, try to sweep it under the rug and, you know, pretend it didn't happen and just have it eat at my worth <laughs> for the mm-hmm. rest of my life, or I can own it. Yeah. I can own that this was my experience, acknowledge that it wasn't what I wanted. And I can potentially do something with it that hopefully makes someone else feel less alone so that Mm. they don't have to sit there in silence. Yes, they don't have to share their story with the world, but they can sit there and know that they aren't alone Mm. and that this is shit, but that it does get better. Like I promise it gets better. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's That's, I think that's what kept me going with my second child is because Mm. I had that perspective of having one already and going, I know they grow. I know it changes. I know this isn't forever. That was a pretty important thing for me, Mm. not being stuck in that. Because the first time it was just like, oh my God, is this ever going to end? Is this ever going to change? It's just all consuming. Yeah. Yeah. So hearing that is pretty important, I think, to know Mm. that it's not always going to feel, and you're not always going to have these emotions and you're not always. Yeah. And it's okay. Like, even if you don't have mental ill health, It is okay Mm. to acknowledge that motherhood and especially that newborn stage can be shit. Yes, it Mm. can be awesome. It can also be really, really hard. And I think it's so important that we talk about that because there are mothers out there who feel alone. Like, yes, they might not have a mental illness, but Mm. they still feel like they're suffering on their own. (laughs) We don't want anyone to feel like that. Yeah. And and that whole sort of pressure that society has on us that it's like we've touched on, it's got to be a certain way. Mothers mm. should be able to do it. it should, you mm. know, and if you ever complain about how hard it is, oh, well, you wanted to have children, you know, this way that society just shuts mothers oh, completely, down. completely, completely. Yeah. Like, oh, but you wanted to have a job. Why are you complaining about your job? Like, it's the same bullshit, but we yeah. don't say that to someone who got a nine to five and is complaining no. about their nine to five, yeah. you know? Yeah. we it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But, I mean, that experience, yes, it, you know, was a way to process my own stuff but it also motherhood and the experience I went through helped me I guess figure out my own values or the values were already there but it was a way I it was kind of pushing me that I had to start to actually live by my values which obviously influenced the work that I'm doing Yes, I am doing podcasting now, but I've always been a writer. Yeah, I've always been into creative writing and storytelling. And, you know, I always wanted to write a book, but (laughs) oh, no, wait, that doesn't pay the bills. I need a nine to five. So, you know, it's this through podcasting. It's actually my way of sharing stories like that journalism, that storytelling, that interviewing, you Mm. know, that's coming back to those values. Yeah. 
and yes, you know, we don't want to sit here and say, oh, you've gone through a shit experience on here's the silver lining. But (laughs) my silver lining is that, you know, going through what I went through, I realized just how important it is to, yeah, not to shut ourselves down and to just go through, yeah, to prioritize what we feel is important. Mm. And yes, it doesn't bring in the bills. (laughs) But, you know, it's it's still important that that doesn't make it any less important. Mm. You know, that mental health advocacy is something I always wanted to do long before I became a mum. Yeah. Right. Um, storytelling was something I always wanted to do. So this platform has allowed me to do both. Mm. And that that's why I don't feel like I'm working. Like, I mean, I can't even call it a job. Like I said, I don't get paid. <laughs> but it feels, it, it's work, but it doesn't feel like work to me. I wake up mm. in the morning and I want to do it. I go to sleep at night thinking about it again and it feels important and Mm -hmm. so I wouldn't yeah the experience of what I went through made me realize just yeah that that direction or that purpose that meaningfulness I guess came through all of the shitty stuff yeah that's it yeah yeah your writing yeah so yeah. I like I said I I only started to kind of see myself as a creative person recently I've always been a creative child though like mm-hmm. which yeah I I guess I forgot about that you know I was always mm-hmm. doing drawing or crafts or writing um always trying to make something I mean it would could be terrible but I was doing it anyway yeah you know um but then you know as you get older and me being who I am you need that praise that validation and so you lose touch with that creativity because it doesn't get you the a pluses or the ticks or the Mm -hmm. you know you, you don't get a job out of it really and so that led me down the path of you know wanting to pursue things that did get me that praise that did get me that a plus and that mm-hmm. validation so you think that you're not good at creativity because you're not getting that that tick yeah. so me yeah. being me I'm a perfectionist as well but in my spare time I wrote I wrote a lot so outside of school or doing homework that was my outlet to understand the world or whatever I was going through um, yeah. but again yeah. I never got that success um I mm-hmm. remember like our, one of our school English teachers she was an actual author And she'd set up a book club at school. And I was so excited because I thought, I just want to be part of this. And I'd written a novel when I was like 13 or something. And so I submitted it to her. And she said, Rebecca, I'm not going to read it because that wouldn't be fair. And I'm glad she didn't in hindsight because it was absolute trash. But (laughs) I mean, you know, it kind of broke my heart a little because I said, oh, I wanted her to read it and I'd be famous author and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so she said, why don't you submit a smaller piece of work And, you know, if it's good, it'll go into the book club because I think you'll be great in the book club. So I Mm -hmm. submitted this piece of work to her and I didn't get into the book club. (laughs) So, you know, it just, I guess all of that, you know, it just reinforces that I wasn't very good. You know, if you don't get that praise, you don't get the, you you think you're not good at it. So you don't want to pursue it. 
Mm. right? Like it's very discouraging. So yeah, I spent yeah. those teenage years telling myself I wasn't creative. I wasn't good at that. So I needed to be, I needed to do things I was good at. I'm, mm-hmm. I was good at, I was actually very good at writing essays. Probably the story writing helped with that, but yeah. You know, I was excellent at writing essays. I'll toot my own horn there. Um, mm-hmm. Even at uni, I would get the high distinctions and things. So I pursued those lines of mm. study and work because that's what got me the the tick of approval, I guess. Mm. And that, yeah. you know, if other people are telling me I'm good at it, then that's what I have to pursue. So mm. <laughs> I would always come back to writing though, you know, um, after school, I'd take little short courses or creative writing courses, certificates or whatever. And I did yeah. so many of them because I just loved telling stories. And I thought the more courses I do, the better I'll get at it. You know, you want to yeah. be the best at it. You don't want to do it unless you're good at it. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's that whole I guess that's a societal thing, but yeah, that need for a job would just come and swallow up any creativity. So Mm. I shifted the focus from maybe writing to becoming a book editor, because that in my mind would be the closest I'd get to being in that field and, Mm -hmm. you know, potentially could hypothetically do some writing around the nine to five kind of thing. Um, I even did a, my university degree was in English literature, writing, Um, Mm -hmm. linguistics journalism editing you know I did all of that and I loved it don't get me wrong but of course it was the essays and the you know the linguistics that got me you know the top of the class and the high distinctions but not Mm. the creative stuff um this is horrible (laughs) story I did a writing workshop at university it was the one creative writing unit I did and I never did another one Mm -hmm. um we had to write a short story bring it to class and the class would workshop the story with you, you know, provide feedback, potentially structure or character development. Anyway, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wrote a story about my own experience with mental illness. So in my early twenties, right. Um, And it was received very terribly. (laughs) So, you know, I got told by one person that I was perpetuating the stereotypes of depression because the character I had in the story was sobbing all day and couldn't get up and work and go to, you know, work couldn't get up and go to work but at the time that's what I was experiencing (laughs) in my early 20s there was a point where my husband who's who was my boyfriend at the time he would have to help me leave the bed carrying me while I was sobbing to the shower because I couldn't physically get up and go to work you know he would be there he would help me wash my hair he would dry my hair with the hair dryer because I just I couldn't function you know, and that was my experience. And so I thought I'd write about that. And that would be my, that was me processing my experience. And yeah, I, I know it's a cliche (laughs) and I know that's not depression for everyone. Believe me, I've had the opposite end of depression where you're just so numb Mm -hmm. that there's no tears. Believe me, I've had, (laughs) but that was my experience. And I wanted to write about that short period of my life. And, you know, I had the lecturer and tutor tell me, well, I shouldn't write about things I don't know about. Clearly I didn't know what I was writing about. (laughs) obviously, Obviously this is just reinforcing that I shouldn't be a writer. I shouldn't be you know, creative. I shouldn't be doing anything that I'm not good at, quote, in quote. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't write about things I clearly, I don't know anything. It was, oh it was my own personal story. Oh, how ridiculous yeah, is that? I mean, obviously it wasn't very good. Clearly everyone was telling me it wasn't very good, which is fine. But, you know, as it Sounds me like being, they weren't very good. <laughs> <laughs> me being me, I just, you know, unless I was getting that recognition that what I was doing was good and worthwhile and helping someone else or whatever, I didn't want to do it. Mm. So that then, you know, 
reinforced that I shouldn't be doing writing or anything creative. So that really pushed me into the editing and publishing. And I didn't do any more creative writing units because I just thought I'm not good at it. I'm, yeah, this isn't for me. I thought I want to do it, but if I'm not getting that feedback, then no, this isn't for me. I'm not good at it. I'll do something I'm good at, which is the things that get you the A plus and the ticks and the, you know, and I, I did, don't get me wrong. I love editing. Um, and publishing. I did a few courses around that as well. Um, I have this fascination with the English language or with language in general. So mm-hmm. I ended up getting a job at my university. I'm on mat leave from it now, but I was an English language specialist and I would edit documents and write glossary definitions. And I'd work in the data team and analyze data from that language point of view rather than numbers. So it, yeah, right. it was meaningful and fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was as close to creativity as I was going to get, but it was still a real job in quote marks. And <laughs> I was enjoying it potentially because I was being praised for it or because mm. I was good at it. And then obviously becoming a mum, <laughs> you know, your whole world and identity and opinion of yourself and values change. Mm. And, yeah. you know, I'm sitting here and it's like, yes, I would love that nine to five, but I want to do something that makes me excited to wake up in the morning, that I'm doing something meaningful, that I'm living to my values um yeah so and again I still don't see myself as a podcaster deep down my little my <laughs> inner my inner self still still sees myself or wants to see myself as a writer yeah. because that's how I've always wanted to see myself yeah so you yeah. know telling stories is a big part of what I do on Instagram not just others but my own and just little snippets here and there and that mm. that provides me the most it's cathartic in a way um, mm, for yeah. me, but yeah, that provides me the most meaningful and purposeful yeah. you know, activity. Anyway, that's, like I said, it's the, I still don't see myself as a podcaster because I'm still figuring <laughs> out, but yeah, I guess now I, I'm learning that I don't have to be great at something to enjoy mm. doing it. And that's taking a while. Don't get me wrong. I'm not hundred percent there yet. There'll still be a part of me that wants to be the best at everything and wants to know what I'm doing before I actually do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to learn by doing it because I don't want to be criticized. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, that mentality that takes that. Yeah. a while to get out of, to break out of. So like I said, yeah. I spent the last year just trying to figure out how to actually podcast and I would do so much and I do so much on the back end so that Mm -hmm. actually now that I'm starting to podcast it's coming easy because I invested so much time into the back end but there was no way I was going to do it at the start at this time last year was actually when I set up my ABN and stuff and anyway but yeah it yeah it's ridiculous but that's no that's the thing though you're conscious of of things that you want to improve or change you know and Mm. that's you know a step ahead of most people I think a lot of people go through life just oblivious to their behaviors or the way their behaviors affect others or things that they could you know change in their lives that would make life better for them so you know good on you (laughs) I I know where I need to improve am I getting there slowly (laughs) will I get there 100% maybe not I'm still (laughs) you know those perfectionist tendencies that you know that you hold on to that criticism mm-hmm. slowly unlearning that but you know and that's okay <laughs> I don't yeah. have to be perfect at not being perfect either <laughs> you know? 
Yeah. <laughs> Look, a lot of what you're saying I can really resonate with. I mean, I think I'm a little bit older than you. I'm in my 40s. Mm. Um, and I've got to a place now where I just don't give a shit of what people think <laughs> anymore. And that is so different to the person I was growing really? up. I was so Freeing. obsessed with what people thought. That feedback was so important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like you've said about situations where people have given you feedback that, you know, wasn't what you wanted to hear and it stopped you from doing things. I, I've done that. Um, and, and at this point in my life, I just think if I want to do something, I'll do it and I don't care. So it's possible. (laughs) It's possible. And it's so freeing when you stop caring what other people think. Yeah. It's it's a wonderful feeling. It like, you're just living your life the way you want to live it. And like, oh God, I would be, I'd be walking down the street as a teenager and I would, I would tell myself these stories in my head that, Oh, that person that just drove past in that car, they were judging my genes that they weren't oh, the absolutely. right fit or something. Like I would create all these things in my head. And then, yeah, as you grow up, you just go, um, no, that didn't happen because people don't give a shit. Everyone's worried about themselves. Everyone's, or even know. if they were judging my genes, that's their problem. It's yeah, mine. exactly. Yeah, no, it I is. It's, it. a, it's an amazing feeling. And you just think, my God, why couldn't I be like this when I was younger? <laughs> How much suffering did we have to go through oh, <laughs> to learn what we've learned now? You know, that's yeah. the, yep. <laughs> but the good side is that, you know, it's going to be, you know, God willing, I live that long, but it's going to be a good next half of my life. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> totally. And what a good example to set, you know, oh, for dear. your kids, really. Because oh, yes. Yeah. teaching them that it's okay to not actually care about other people or like you have to bend yourself over backwards to accommodate other people's whatever. Yeah. You know, I think that that's a huge thing that we're unlearning and that we get to teach our children. Mm. Yep. So I'm, I'm excited, I guess, for the future <laughs> to see and hope that our kids don't carry that bullshit with them until yeah. they're in their 30s or 40s or whatever, that they can maybe live a little without <laughs> that fear of judgment, that yeah. fear of upsetting someone else dramatically, you know, just by mm-hmm. being themselves. Yeah, you know? exactly. And making no apologies for how how they want to dress and what music they want to exactly. listen to. Oh, Yeah. I talk to all my mums about this this topic of mum guilt mm. and um, I find it really interesting. It's something that I'm, I don't know why I'm so interested in it, probably because I hate it so much and I wish You're it didn't You're allowed exist. to be, like, um, you just are. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, what, what's your take on it? I mean, I do believe mum guilt is real. Mm. Um, I haven't quite decided if it's based on you know, the way we compare ourselves or our unrealistic expectations that we have of motherhood or the unrealistic expectations society gives us about motherhood. I don't mm. know if it's that or if there is some intrinsic component to mum guilt, but it's definitely real and it does rear its ugly head, I guess, in so many contexts. You know, there's so many shoulds. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. And I I'm guilty of I'm guilty of mum guilt I still feel like I should be doing more or spending more time with my son and you know potentially if I wasn't working a little bit on the podcast then maybe I could cook a better meal for him or you know whatever it is but 
I'm also learning, and again, this is a slow process, I'm learning to be self-compassionate. Sure, I could push myself beyond my, you know, human limits um, to be better, but what would that, that, would it actually make the guilt go away or just make it appear in another way or in another form, mm. yeah. another context? There's no winning, you know, there's always going to be something better. There's always something going to be more you could be doing. And then there's more sacrifices you make on yourself. And what's the cost? <laughs> so I'm trying mm-hmm. to learn to just, it's there and it sucks, but I'm trying to keep it as background noise and trying not to let it control me because I don't think it would benefit myself or my son or myself to be a mother who sacrifices 100% of my own wants and needs to be better. I don't think it's benefiting either of us really. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so mm-hmm. mom go, it, it's there and it sucks. <laughs> but yeah, it's just learning to, I don't know. It, I don't, like I said, I don't know if, where it comes from or if it can ever go away, but I'm learning that if it's there, it can stay there, but I'm just going to not try to feed into it or let it control my motherhood or my human <laughs> experience really. Yeah. Yeah, no, that it's so true. It's like when you say, you know, if you did do something, then something else would suffer, and then you feel guilty mm-hmm. about that. And then if you didn't mm-hmm. do that, then you feel guilty about that. It's like it's just and this constant juggle. That's isn't the it? thing, you know, it, especially in motherhood, we talk about this work-life balance, and I don't know if it actually exists. Mm. I think we're all just struggling to find that balance or that ideal balance, and really, it just doesn't exist because you could be at work, you're feeling guilty, you're not at home. You're at home, you're feeling guilty, you're not working, and there mm-hmm. is, or I could be exercise, or I should be doing this, or I should be doing that, and there is no winning, there is no balance because to have that balance, you'd need that peace and you know that you're doing a hundred percent yeah do that it's impossible yeah it's impossible so Mm. I'm yeah it's there and it sucks and I'm learning just to let it sit there and to just sit in that discomfort that it will exist and I am doing my best um and it will tell me I could be doing more I could be doing better or that there is a different definition of best Mm. but just trying to yeah let it just be let it let's myself mm. sit with it and just do what I'm doing anyway yeah now that's really good advice I think that that, that thing of being kind to ourselves and mm. not making ourselves feel guilty for feeling guilty you know just you know oh I don't know as long as you, you like someone put a post up the other day and I just thought this is the epitome of life you know if you can <laughs> tuck your child into bed who's fed and loved and you know Mm. I just think that we've made it. You know, if if your child wakes up in the morning with a smile on his face and I don't know. I, I agree <laughs> because like you said, there are so many shoulds and mm-hmm. sorry, social media just feeds into that. Or you should be bottle feeding or co-sleeping or not bottle. You shouldn't use a dummy. You shouldn't this, you shouldn't that. And yeah. you get so caught up in doing it right and feeling like you're doing it wrong. But as you said, if your kid's alive, if they're happy, you've got a roof over your head, you're doing everything bloody right. Mm. There is no Mm. wrong in that situation. And I wish we could say that more. We Mm. get so caught up on what we should or shouldn't be doing and everyone's got a different opinion. And really, as you said, or as that quote said, I think I saw it yesterday um, on your stories, but your kid's fed, they're happy, there's a roof over your head, they're in a warm bed. 
you're the best mother for them. You're doing mm. everything right. Drown out everything else because it's not yeah. doing you any favours, really. Mm, absolutely. And and you also touched on that that sort of context, that, that idea of martyrdom about giving up mm. everything of yourself. Mm. Um, but it's just... It, oh, I don't know. It just think I'd I'd be crazier than what I am if, if I had to devote yeah. every single moment of my time to my children. I just think I don't know. A lot of people I talk to to through the podcast, mm. um, you know, creative women who were doing something before they had a child, and just because they happen to have a child doesn't mean mm. that that creativity and that need to create and the outlet and the release mm. and the regulation that they get from creating just dissipates you know it's Mm. it's such a I don't know it's a ridiculous notion for some women being a mother 100% of the time actually is fulfilling and meaningful to them and Mm. hats off to them yeah for other women that's not the case and we need to make space for both there's no Mm -hmm. right or wrong that you know if you are 100% fulfilled in motherhood and you know meeting the needs of your children then go for it no one is stopping you for mm. other mums I know for me I'm I don't know if it's an only child thing I'm an only child I need my space mm-hmm. I, I don't care if it's to do nothing I need my space from other people and yeah. that includes my son I love the kid I love being able to see him smile and try new foods or play with him love him I need my space yeah <laughs> Yeah, one of your questions on the um, the page was in terms of identity. And mm, yes, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily important for me to see myself as being more than just a mother. There's nothing wrong with being just a mother, but mm-hmm. I always wanted to be a mother. But I think it's important for me to be someone who lives according to her values mm. and someone who acknowledges that I do have my own needs and my own wants. And that's OK. That's actually OK. Um, I'd never really wanted to be a career person, um, but I also didn't want to be a stay-at-home mom, I guess. And I, trying to find that balance between the two extremes was important, I guess. And I'm still mm-hmm. trying to figure that out. Um, I want to work, but I also want to raise my son. But I also want to meet my own needs and live by my values and explore my own interests and whether those change. I just want to be able to do that. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever find that balance, but it's important to me that you know I meet my own needs and it's important that my son can see that I am my own person. Yes. And, yep. you know, if one day I want to be just a mother or I devote 100% of my time to my mom, I'll go with that if that's intrinsically what I want to be doing. But yeah. I guess for me it's important that I'm doing what intrinsically feels right and just trying to balance being a mum, figuring out my own shit, yeah. <laughs> you know, healing and pursuing my own interests and giving myself the opportunity to do that without labeling it as good or bad, mm. without being able to judge myself or say, well, I'm not good at it. I shouldn't do it. Or it's not bringing in, you know, it's not paying the bills. Therefore I shouldn't even try, you know, it's yeah. just trying to fit it in <laughs> around all the other shit that I'm trying to do, <laughs> you know, and I guess that yeah. probably goes to your other question about day-to-day creativity like how does that work I mean there is no structure to my day it just whatever feels right like if I feel like playing with my son I'm going to play with him or if I feel like doing podcast stuff I'll work it around his schedule um so for some background information here my um my husband's in the military 
So yeah. up until two weeks ago, he was deployed for the whole year. Um, so oh, when my Lord. son, yeah, so when my son was six months old, my husband got deployed out of Sydney. So he was still in Australia, mm-hmm. but he was in intensive training. He was allowed to come home every blue moon for 24 hours, but yeah. then he had to go back. Yeah. So yeah, I was um, solo parenting my son for a whole year up until two weeks ago. And I mean, I didn't go back to, you know, my office job because mm-hmm. with I mean, I've been sick as well. I've had glandular fever for the last six months. So, you oh know, gosh. everything that could happen <laughs> could go wrong this year. Oh my God. But in saying that, I've surprised myself with, I guess, growing up, I always had that narrative in my head that I was not capable. I'm not capable of coping. I'm not an independent person. I need to rely on other people. I'm not an adult. You know, you, you yeah. tell yourself that stuff and then you're thrown into the deep end and you're like, oh shit, I can actually cope. We, yes, we're mm-hmm. not in thrive mode. We're definitely in survive <laughs> mode this year, but I did it. Mm. I actually did it. And I raised my son and not just that, I also got to work on something I was really, really passionate about yeah. in the background. Um, but yeah, so in terms of day-to-day stuff with me and my son, it was just when he was having a nap, I would quickly try to do some podcasting stuff or when he'd go to bed at night I'd, I'm I'm such a night owl I get so much done at night yeah. um, but that was my me time I could mm-hmm. you know sit down and figure out okay what podcasting platform do I want to use or what's my calendar system that people can book through and mm-hmm. oh I'm, I'll do my website you know I'll, I was just working on it piece by piece by piece and it's hard when you're in that moment because you think I'm not getting anywhere. But when you look mm. back and it's like, oh shit, look at all this stuff that I've done. Yeah. Like, look, yes. oh my God, it's actually, I actually did all of that. And it was just little moments, mm-hmm. little moments that I could just slowly build. And again, I wasn't getting feedback from that. This was me doing something that felt right. And that yeah. was all the feedback or motivation that I needed is that it just felt purposeful it felt meaningful um but yeah I mean that's not to say it was easy my son at eight months old decided he didn't like sleeping in the cot anymore this was a kid who slept in a cot from the moment he was born he was such a chill calm babe all of a sudden he wants to Uh co-sleep so you know there I am nine o'clock at night, rocking him to sleep in my arms because he wouldn't sleep in the cot. He wouldn't sleep alone. He had to be on me or near me. Mm -hmm. And then I was finally going to eat dinner once I was able to feel confident enough to, you know, roll him off me. (laughs) (laughs) Then I could go be a human, have a shower, have Mm -hmm. dinner, and then I could go. (laughs) And that's hard. It's hard solo Mm -hmm. parenting. And I'm so, you know, lucky my husband... I didn't have to go back to a nine to five job because I, you know, we could financially afford for me to be at home with our son, you know, working on my mental health, my physical health, looking after Mm. my son who brought home every daycare illness in the world. He was there three days a week. And I swear this year he was home more than he was actually at daycare because Mm -hmm. he'd been so sick. And then I'd catch whatever he caught. And it was just, definitely surviving but just any moment that I could just do something for myself on top of you know having a shower brushing my teeth and eating mm-hmm. yes yeah. <laughs> like it was a hard oh. year it was a very hard year God, but I've got so much respect for you seriously 
because we're oh my lord that is just my nightmare seriously I just I just yeah. I feel oh, I always feel so incapable um when I when I had my first like real um episode I suppose mm. call it, after yeah. my son was born the thought in my head was I can't do this I yeah. can't do this I don't know what 100%. to do which was ridiculous because mm. I worked in childcare for years before I had him so I knew how to look yeah. after children you know, but it was just this irrational, I can't do this. And it took me a long, long time to, even after I was, you know, medicated and things were, were sort mm. of, I want to say, getting back to normal. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I was like, oh, I can't, I don't know what I'm doing. What's, you know, just this doubt, serious self-doubt. Yeah. And um, similar thing when my husband got COVID God. earlier in the year and so we were really trying to isolate him away from the rest of us. Mm. And my first thought was, oh, shit, I'm going to have How to am I going to do, do it all this? myself. But then I actually did do it and I was actually mm. fine. And I think because because I knew that there was no other option, it was like I just, just had, had to, to do, do it. it. And so I actually didn't struggle that much because I was ex- really accepting of the situation yeah. I was in and was like, okay, not saying it, you know, it wasn't hard no. and everything was wonderful, but I didn't let myself get to those extremes where I'd get, to a complete meltdown because I knew that there was no saving me. Like there was nothing coming, yeah. you know. And I think as well, we tell ourselves these stories that we can't do it. Mm-hmm. And yet when we're actually in a situation, yes, it's hard, but we've, <laughs> hey, here I am. Like we're, yeah. we're actually surviving. And it's it's that buildup. You know, I think a yes. big part of my episode was obviously I was in the hospital and all I could keep thinking was how the fuck am I going to do this when my husband's away next year? You know, this was last. How the hell am I going to get through this? How am I going to cope? I can't even look after myself. How the hell am I going to look after the son? I'm in this hospital. Mm -hmm. There's mothercraft nurses and pediatricians and psychologists around me all day. It was great. How the (laughs) fuck am I going to do this alone? But I did. I did and we just figured it out and it was hard, but we Mm -hmm. did it. But it's that buildup and Mm -hmm. mental illness is is mean it is so mean to us it tells us we can't do anything it tells us we can't cope it tells us we're incompetent and that you know then you play into the other oh, kids deserve better and oh but other people can cope why can't I yeah you know yeah. and it's a bully and mm. really the reality is we can actually do hard things and it sucks do not get me wrong <laughs> it sucks but we can do it and yeah. when you're in those moments you just do it there's no doubting yourself because you are actually doing it Mm, yeah yeah that was that was one of the the words that I'd tell myself to help myself out of things when I'd get this I can't do it and I'd say no but I am actually doing it right now I am doing it you know just to tell myself a different story and to trick my brain I suppose yes we have to (laughs) untrick our brain because it's tricking us yes yes yeah it is it's it is tricking us and I don't know I I um with my music I've I've given my, this post-sale depression, this persona of the wolf, I call it the wolf. And I've written, um, I'm working on an album at the moment where the whole, the whole album is about, it's called Wolf and it's about the whole journey. And it's each song is a, is a little time frame of how I felt at different times. And I, and it literally, that's how it felt. It was consuming me. It was this thing Mm. that wasn't me, Mm. even though it was existing within me. Mm. And it was attacking me and it was taking all the good things away and it was making me scared and vulnerable. Um, sorry, I'm getting goosebumps while I say oh, this I now. Know. I just, it's like, it's just this thing that 
inhabits you you know like people call it the you know the black dog you know it's just it's just this thing and yeah we can we can tell a different story you know it's I mean I don't that sounds so simplistic but when you're in like you said before when you're in the when it's really happening when you're in these episodes you can't Mm. do anything there is no No. there's no rational thought there's no way of controlling but when you start to come out Mm. you know and the help of you know professionals and what have you and then you can start to sort of rewire and Mm. and what do they call that cognitive behavioral therapy whatever it is like telling yourself a different story taking out Mm. the shoulds oh we should do this we should do that Mm. you know that was one of the things someone said to me at one stage take out the shoulds there's no Mm. should it's you might do this or you might think about doing this or you know just change the wording Mm. around things simple things like that can make a massive difference Um, back to identity not just motherhood but mental illness it feels like a part of you it feels like who you are it feels like your identity so being able to separate yourself from those thoughts from that experiences is very hard to do Mm -hmm. as you said coming out of it you're able to look at it as something different you're able to look at it as a wolf or whatever personification you give it because Mm -hmm. you're able to see that it's happening to you but it's not you and that's very very powerful and for me that was where storytelling came in Mm -hmm. the more I wrote about it the more I tried to be poetic about my experience or to just even just journal it I started to see it as not me not my Mm. identity and that's when you're that's when you're healing right yeah yeah I know firsthand how easy it is to feel like this is who you are and therefore it's you that's broken or it's it's never going to get better because you're not getting better you know Mm. you you tell yourself these things but yeah yeah in terms of identity it yeah it's all consuming really yeah and that's the thing there was no way when I was in the throes of it the real death mm. there was no way I was separating it out no I was it was me you know mm. and it was um the same gynecologist that I that you know made the off the cup comment about. oh you that, could have just fixed it with one yeah, pill a day like yeah. he's so pragmatic he's he's <laughs> an awesome bloke and I, I have yeah. a great relationship with him and he he said um he said you know it's it's a chemical imbalance in your brain that's mm. what it is it, it's a chemical imbalance in your brain yeah. And it was like, right, there you go. It's not me. It's my no. it's and I and that really gave me the power to say, I I am not in control of this. You mm. know, I physically cannot. So I had this horrible experience between I had between having my two children mm. where um and I say f- a friend, I put that yeah. in air quotes because I don't see this person anymore or associate with her because of this next reason, mm. um, told me that that mental illness and depression don't exist because <clears throat> you should be able to keep yourself well by affirmations, positive affirmations, like that before That's we're so laughing cute, about that. That's so cute, isn't it? Like, and I just so thought cute. <laughs> you have no idea. You have not experienced what I've experienced. Like, and that was even before I had the big episode <clears throat> with the second child. It's like, sure, I'm not dismissing the fact that, you know, if you're a generally well person, 
Mm. If you don't have massive chemical imbalances in your brain, sure, yeah. keeping yourself, you know, mentally well through positive thinking and eating well and exercising, that that's great. But when you actually are mm. so unwell, severely mm. unwell, there's no amount of bloody no. positive affirmations that's going to save you. Like it's not even on the radar. <laughs> no, and I think, like you said, it's not to t- dismiss the importance of that stuff. Eating well, yeah. exercising, it is important. Yeah. And it's very useful, potentially when you are in that mild category, you know, or if yeah. you had a bad experience, you know, and we're not even talking trauma, we're just talking something negative has happened in your life, mm-hmm. going and doing those things, even just a little talk therapy, affirmation, they are so helpful. There's no yeah. doubting it, but <laughs> <laughs> there is a difference between, you know, feeling a little depressed or a little anxious, sorry, depressed or a little anxious versus having the illness Mm -hmm. there's a big difference um and again it's not to invalidate those feelings but the illness is something entirely different and Mm -hmm. I'm I'm with you I see a lot of that on social media I see a lot of oh mental illness isn't real or it's just a societal problem and if we fix society it would don't get me wrong there are societal (laughs) factors that do impact our mental health it is an illness like mm-hmm. for God's sake, we need to stop invalidating it yes. because this is the reason people don't get help. This is yes. the reason stigma exists. There's so mis- so much misinformation about it. And sadly, this is the reason some people die. Mm. It's you know? like you're made to feel like it's your fault. You're, Absolutely. The, you're the person who didn't because do enough you didn't think positively enough. <laughs> yeah. You didn't do enough to prevent it. You didn't do enough to think positively. You didn't do enough to exercise. I was mm-hmm. exercising four or five times a week during my pregnancy. I was eating well. Pregnancy was physically the healthiest time in mm-hmm. my entire life. It was also the most mentally unwell I ever was in my entire life. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, we can throw these things out and say, you could just journal. I was journaling. Like, yeah. I, we can do, I was seeing a psychologist. I was doing everything right, ticking mm-hmm. all the boxes. It doesn't matter. It does not discriminate. And it is an illness you know give yourself some grace for that like Mm. it and like I said before I blamed myself a lot I thought I'm doing everything right I should have prevented this it doesn't Mm. work like that yeah and how much more suffering do we go through because we think oh but they thought their way out of it or but they just exercised and felt better they went for a walk why isn't that fixing me Mm. we suffer so much more because of this misinformation because of I don't know. People people aren't like this with physical illness. It's not oh. like, oh, I'm going to yell at my kidney for not producing enough insulin if I yeah. have diabetes. But yeah. we we dismiss anything in our mind because we think we have control over it. Really, yes. we're only cognizant of what 10% of our brain. Oh. Like it just yeah. it does my head in that we still have these attitudes. It's 2022. Like, yeah. come on. But yeah, you still see it on social media. Oh, if you just mm. take these vitamins, if you oh. just work on your, you know, oh, you're clearly deficient in this vitamin. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yes, having a balanced diet, having our, you know, vitamins and nutrients, it's all important, but that is not the cure. Yeah. Like we need oh, to yeah. stop pushing it as the cure <laughs> yeah. because it's not. Yeah, and yeah, I, I whenever I see stuff like that, I just think they, they that person who's running it, they have no idea. No idea. They actually have no idea. Mm. And they're seeing life in this fanciful sort of rose-coloured mm. glasses sort of way. Mm. They've never suffered. No. They've never struggled in, in that from actual mental illness, yeah. you know. 
Um, and I just, I get so mad. I just have to unfollow people or block people. Yep. I just think, and there's no, there's no debating with people no. like that. They've got no. their, their hard ingrained views. They're not going to listen to, you know, no. me writing a comment. Um, but I do think sometimes when there's a big backlash to something um, in the media, like a um, a celebrity said something mm. and everyone jumps on them, they're the times when people with these, you know, perhaps don't understand, have this glimpse into maybe understanding. I don't know. Like I remember years ago, this has gone mm. back ages, Val Kilmer's, one of Val Kilmer's friends passed away through suicide mm. and he wrote this big thing on his Facebook um, I'm sorry you couldn't hold on for us. I'm sorry. And it's like this had nothing to do with you. It had no. nothing to do with anybody else. And people jumped on him. And he and he was writing it from a point of view that he'd experienced seeing someone with depression, right? Mm. And so people were saying, you obviously have never experienced no. this yourself. And it was a real big thing. And he kept, turned around and said, I'm really sorry. I didn't understand, mm. you know. And so moments like that, I sort of hold on to hope that other people will see that and go, oh, actually, maybe I don't understand this. Yeah. But, yeah, in everyday stuff, you know, there's no there's no debating with these people. That That's what they no. believe and you're never going to change them. But I just hope, yeah, society, yeah, it, it really pisses me off. Like it does. Someone yeah. with a broken leg, you're not going to go along and kick their crutches away and say, come on, you can control yourself, fix your leg, you know. Yeah. I feel like sometimes going around with a T-shirt, like I have a mental illness, like piss off. Like I don't okay. know, like... Do I need a, a sign to say, like, <laughs> be nicer to me? Like, I, I don't oh, know. It just, and it oh. shouldn't be that way. It yeah, shouldn't. absolutely. And I mean, I wouldn't wish it on those people because unfortunately, sometimes the only way you know is if you have gone through it personally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I mean, I wouldn't wish it on them to know it. But yeah, unfortunately, there is still so much misinformation about mm -hmm. mental health and so much bullshit, really, so much that, people don't know or that they think they know. Yes, they think they know because they might have seen it or they've had it. Or they felt a little bit depressed about something at oh. one point in time, but it's yeah. very different from the illness, like oh. very different. And yeah. I wish, yeah, I wish we didn't have to justify the illness. No one with diabetes has to, I mean, sometimes people you know they weight shame or whatever oh it's your own fault it's not your fault like for yeah. god's sake whether it's a physical illness or a mental illness we need to stop this shaming of people who aren't 100 percent well all the time mm. you know it's not their own fault it happens it's something like gestational diabetes as well during pregnancy mm -hmm. there's so much blame and this mis misinformation that you caused it yourself you weren't eating right enough you weren't you know exercising enough it's nothing to do with that like yeah. for god's sake In terms of your support network, hmm. um, what does that look like for you? I mean, one of the best support networks, if I can be honest, is the fact my son went to daycare like three days a week. Yep. <laughs> that helped. Um, you know, my mum 
and my dad have been an enormous help, like practically, especially with my husband being away. So they'd come help look after Pudgy. Sorry, I call my son Pudgy is what it is. It's his nickname. (laughs) Well, when I was pregnant, my bump, we called it my Pudge. So it just, the poor kid, the name has just stuck. And even all my friends and family, how's Pudge doing? Hi, Pudgy. Like, Oh, that's adorable. (laughs) It's it's stuck with him. But yeah, they'll come over, look after Pudge and... um, yeah, or look after some of the practical stuff around the house, especially when I was in the real, real pits of glandular and I couldn't move. I was sleeping all day and no matter how much I slept, I was still tired. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was lucky my parents, yes, they're like an hour away in traffic, but they were still able to come over every now and then and help out and stay. And especially with both of us, me and Pudgy being sick, like that yeah. was such a big help. I still have a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, I still see my psychiatrist through the um, mother and baby unit hospital, which is phenomenal. Mm. Um, and yeah, obviously I had my husband via FaceTime and stuff, which I get, you know, it's not the same, but thank God for technology. Yeah. You know, thank God oh, yeah. we have that stuff. Um, so yeah, in a way I was, I was supported in that aspect. Um, maybe more so for the practical stuff and the, mm-hmm. Um, mental health stuff in terms of the artistic or work creative stuff even though I still don't quite see myself <laughs> as that just yet um, we're working on that yeah. um I really don't think I had anyone to draw on I don't have friends who really I don't know anyone who has their own business or who you know made a living out of something creative so mm-hmm. this is like I said it's all very very new to me I'm still figuring this out as I go I'm teaching myself I'm learning I mean social media has been good in that sense that you mm-hmm. know you create that community and you you then are in touch with um a lot of other women who are trying to be creative or they're trying to make a business out of something that they're passionate about and so you yeah. do have that solidarity um, I guess none of us have it completely figured out, but yeah, just doing the best we can and learning as we go. I, like I said, the support I've had has been very, I don't know. I've been very self-taught, I guess. I wish, <laughs> I wish I had someone to say, how do I actually do this? Or yeah. what the hell is an ABM? Like, you know, I'm really going from scratch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I like that on social media. Like if mm. I see, if I see something, I think I messaged you one day. I you saw did, yeah. one of you think it's like, how did you do that? I want to do that. Like literally my son's asleep in my arms and I'm sitting there, whether it's two hours, however long he's having a nap, he won't move from my arms. I'll sit there on camera and just have a play, yeah. you know, and it's not perfect, but I'm just, oh, this looks good. Or I, I'm trying to do everything free, right? Like I, yeah. I'm sure yeah. I could pay for extra or I could pay someone to do it for me, but I'm trying to do it all myself. Yeah. I'm trying to do it as cheaply and free as possible so I'll just have a play yeah and if it looks all right if I feel happy with it then I'll post it and yeah yeah, I like I said I wish I had someone to say just use this template or yeah (laughs) make my life a bit easier but yeah it's just figuring it out as I go and if I'm playing while he's asleep then I might learn something or I might learn how not to do something then <laughs> I'm still learning yeah. either way really yeah no I love that I think that's that's awesome I, I um yeah <laughs> part of my experience of not worrying what people thought um I basically just jumped in and did it because I had all my software from singing so I, and I love editing so I was that but then same thing like 
the things that you spent time on beforehand, I mm. literally just did it by the seat of my pants as I went. Oh, I, I love like, it. I really want to do this and I'm going to do it right now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it can work either way. You can make it, it work however it suits your personality, I suppose. Exactly. And I think for myself, I had to justify that, okay, if I want this to be real, then I have to know what I'm doing and I have to do it. Like I have to put all the pieces together in the right order and do it mm-hmm. slowly so that I can justify that this is going to be a valid thing. Not that I'm just, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. And I mean, going to identity, I know this is such a stereotype, but you know the whole the stereotype of, oh, you're just a mum and you're working on a passion project while you're on maternity leave. Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be just that. I wanted Mm. to work against that narrative that, oh, I get to, you know, play around with this passion project while my husband works a nine-to-five to to financially support me so that I can work on this passion project. I Mm. really wanted to work against that narrative and I wanted to be... against that stereotype and I wanted to be able to monetize and make it legit and real not just something I'm slapping together I don't know I wanted to be able to work against the stereotype and contribute to the family (laughs) I mean I haven't done that yet (laughs) so it's you know not I haven't really challenged the stereotype but in a way as well sorry you've mentioned on the um the question sheet like the values we have as a society on art and on creativity and that narrative works against it right like we Mm. so I wanted to work against that stereotype but I guess in doing so I'm just perpetuating the stereotype that creativity or women's work just doesn't matter unless it brings in money Mm. you know um yeah and I think it is safe to say we just don't value art in society which is ironic because we we consume so much of it, whether yes. it's art, yeah. whether it's listening to podcasts or music or watching movies, TV shows, even the design that goes into advertising. We consume mm-hmm. so much of it and yet we don't value the work behind it because it doesn't pay the bills. We are in a capitalist society unless, you know, we value competition, we value activities that can be monetized. Mm. <laughs> but because it doesn't pay the bills, even I don't see myself as a creative person. Like I said, because I'm not bring, I'm not a real podcaster I'm not a real Mm. writer because that avenue of work is not bringing in money for me Mm. at this point in time as much as like you know if someone (laughs) wants to sponsor me I'll I'll take it (laughs) It, it's meaningful to me nonetheless and I'm doing Mm. it because it feels right and I will go back to my job next month but Mm. my nine to five job I should say but I'm still going to be doing this and I've told my husband this is still a priority for me around mothering around my nine to five being able to share these stories and tell stories and advocate and educate about maternal mental health is something I hope to be doing for the rest of my life. I will advocate for more mother and baby psychiatric hospitals, I think, mm-hmm. to the day I die, because mm-hmm. I don't think, look, unless something else happens in my life and that becomes the focus of my attention, that's my passion, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and I want I want to keep doing that. And I don't think if, if I stopped doing that, I don't think I'd be living authentically mm, as yeah, much as absolutely. it doesn't bring in the bills. <laughs> yeah, that's um, it, You know, it? I don't yeah. see it as real or important or valuable because it's not seen that way by other people because it's not bringing in money. And mm. that's, that's just what, yeah. So I'm, I, yeah, I'm in this weird space of, 
you know, not wanting to be the stereotypical mum on maternity leave, just doing a passion project while happy's at nine to five. And then, but yeah, I'm, I guess in a way I'm perpetuating that because I'm, because it's not bringing in money. I'm, yeah. Yeah, it's it's such a minefield. It's such isn't a it? bullshit thing. Yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. It's yeah. it's a frustrating one. That it, it's something that I've gotten more and more annoyed about. <laughs> the of more, course. The more I talk to people, and I've particularly, and I've told this story a million times. So I'm sorry if you've already heard this story. No, tell me. Listener. Uh, <laughs> the uh, through the lockdown, mm. um, and I, I say that I didn't really suffer too much. I wasn't like Melbourne. Mm. was like you know the most locked down city in the world or something but um we we saw the sport continue you know Mm. all this these these afl footballers were moving around the country continuing Mm. to play sport and earn money and uh, for all the um the tv companies with the rights so you know their money Mm. was really important apparently so they kept going but you know all of the art stopped all of the gigs all of the music all of that stopped yeah. and it really annoyed me because like you said we consume so much art and the the result of creativity of people we're all sitting on our asses watching Netflix I mean who do you mm. think made that you know like it just really annoyed me and that yeah. that's how society views art and creativity and like ironically to get through the lockdown a lot of us turned to art not necessarily mm. creating but consuming it or yeah like schools like teachers would just say look don't don't do all this maths homework, go paint a picture, go read a book, go do something creative and meaningful. Mm. And that was therapeutic. And we turned to that in those times when it was hard and we know the value of it. We know how valuable it is on paper for our own therapy, for our own meaningfulness, for our own values and purpose. We Mm. know how valuable it is, but because there's not that monetary (laughs) benefit we don't value it as a society so once lockdown lifts okay we can all go back to normal and we're we're not going to prioritize art as therapy we're not going to you know look after our creative um you know ourselves there's so many different parts of ourselves our practical self our physical self our creative self we're not going to prioritize that part of ourselves because we just need to resume our you know Mm. nine to five activities we need to contribute to the economy like that's all that's seen as important and I Believe me, I understand why we had to go into lockdown Mm. to protect all of us. You know, I I get it. It's still just, it's upsetting that there were some things that were prioritised over others. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you do see society through a clearer lens when you are in those situations where you see what we value. Mm -hmm. And ironically, we do value art because that's what we were consuming. Yeah. And yet that's not what society or our economy per se values Mm -hmm. because it's not got a dollar attached to it, really. Yeah. Yeah, I hate it. It really frustrates me. When you were growing up... Mm. Your mum, what sort of sort of role modelling did you get from your mum in terms of 
what a mother could look like, I suppose. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up my grandmother here as well, because <laughs> I was very largely raised by my grandmother. So yeah. my grandparents um, migrated from Italy um, yeah. in their twenties, I guess. Um, and they set up shop, they had kids. Um, so in terms of mothering, from my grandmother's point of view, mothering was her whole life. Yeah, right. Um, you know, you did everything for your children. You cooked for them, you cleaned for them. That was your goal. And I think as well, having that migrant background, you know, you do that for your kids so that they can go and succeed. Mm, so yeah. I guess mothering was her identity or being a domestic um, worker, I guess, was the identity. That was her only role in life. Mm -hmm. um but that's also a cultural thing you know yeah. and then from my mother's perspective my mother you know did go study and become that career woman um because I guess and I mean maybe this is just my interpretation of it but growing up with the migrant family and that expectation that you have to do something with your life they didn't suffer they didn't sacrifice all of this for you to just not doing it you know yeah, you want to yeah. succeed you want to be good at what you're doing and my mom was an excellent career woman um and I guess as a mother it was I had those two extremes I had um career woman and then I had the domestic and I'm I guess I don't know where I see myself like I said I'm trying to find that middle ground that's not to say my mother wasn't mothering or that my grandmother oh, didn't have a job because yeah. she did have a job at some point but yeah. in terms of the priorities my own mother then carried the um I think again this is just my interpretation she carried that maybe the migrant mentality of you need to do everything for your children my mother just did it in the sense of providing financially yeah yep. you know it's you know she wanted me to go to a good school and to study and to work you know and in order mm. to do that it wasn't to stay at home it was to go out and work and work her ass off mm. to be able to put me into private school or put you know just have that better life or have the provide things that maybe she didn't have you know it's that yeah. it's that yeah. cycle and I don't know if it's a I don't know if it's a cultural thing or a migrant thing I don't know but yeah in terms of motherhood I guess I had both examples mm. of wanting to do everything for your but either way whether it was through the home or through work it was doing everything for your children there was not yes. yep. for you and yeah. yeah I guess that that's yeah, something I'm trying to navigate, you know, I'm, I, I can genuinely say, I'm sorry to my son, I'm not the mother that's gonna do everything for him, mm, you yeah. know, whether that's a good or bad thing, I don't, I know that if I go down that road, that pressure will eat at me, mm -hmm. I will not be an authentic person, and I will not be a healthy person, because, you yeah. know, even before I became a mother, you know, wanting to emulate that and have a career and push myself to my extremes, that's yeah. when the mental illness creeps in, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to find this balance between wanting to be the best mom I can for my son versus not sacrificing my sanity or my passions or my, my soul, really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I yeah. want to find that balance where yes, my son is important and I want him to feel important and that I will do anything for him, mm. but not at the cost of, I don't know, I don't want to work until nine o'clock at night or I don't want to just focus on the housework all day, every day. Like I want to mm. find that balance. 
you yeah. know and I don't know what that looks like I'm I'm figuring that out as I go but yeah yeah I guess I, growing up motherhood was modeled like that there was no creativity there mm. wasn't and yeah that that's okay that was their experience and that's what they did to survive and you know obviously I respect the work that they did and how mm. hard they worked for their children you know that's that's yeah. the cultural attitude that I do want to take. I want my son to know I worked hard so that he can have a roof over his head or that, you know, mm. we can then go out and play. But I want also to enjoy the time with him yeah. um, and not, yeah, I don't know. I, I think this was probably the question that I struggled the most trying to think about um, from your yeah. list. Yeah. But trying you, to navigate that. Do you think also in that your, your own context of, of, you know, of working hard, Mm. is that working and I feel like this I feel like this for myself so mm. you, you may or may not feel like but working hard on your own mental wellness so mm. you can be there for your child and you can meet their needs in a way that you're happy with and that you mm. know is good for your child mm. I mean that's a big priority for me um yeah. and it always has been um before I became a mother you know, with my prior experiences of mental health, I took my mental health very seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'd i been in therapy probably since I was 16, like just being able to work through that stuff. And I'd always said I didn't want to take it into motherhood. I didn't want my son to bear that burden. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really focused on the skills and the therapy and the healing during my 20s. But I guess... <laughs> that kind of worked in a backwards way for me because it became that fixation. Like I said at the start, pregnancy, I was consumed with planning for postpartum. And a big part of that was that, first of all, I didn't want mental illness to get in the way of birth or my parenting, Mm. but I also didn't want it to be something that my son inherited, I guess. Mm, Um, But by having that fixation, it inevitably... (laughs) Yeah, it worked against me because I was I was mentally ill and I just didn't see it. I was so focused on postpartum that I just, I was really in denial about what I was going through through pregnancy. Um, mm. And, you know, it wasn't until I got to postpartum that I had that acute crisis episode that I was, you know, admitted to hospital. Um, that I was doing the best I could, mm. you know. Yep. And there's no such thing as 100% perfectly healed or recovered as much as I would like to (laughs) think that or as much as I held on to that belief that I could be cured and would never ever impact my son Mm. I know now that healing being imperfect but still working on my healing is the best thing I can do for my son Mm. It is absolutely the best thing I can do for him in that working on myself, acknowledging my own bullshit, being self-aware, that is the best thing I can do for him. Not being perfect, like that perfectionism or holding on to being perfect or cured or happy all the time would actually be more damaging to him Mm -hmm. than a mother who acknowledges her own shit and is trying to work on it and apologises and stuff. Like that's what's going to help him in the long run. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and like I, that's yeah. always been a priority, um, clearly. But now I'm approaching it from a different perspective. But. Yeah, no, I think like my eldest son's 14 and has his own issues with mental health. And mm. I think it's really important to role model as a parent that 
you know, things are really hard, but if you're, if you put in the work and you, you utilize the tools around you and the things that you have access to, mm. then that's really, it is really important to, it is. You can't just sweep it under the rug and you can't no. just think, oh, everything's going to be fine. It's like you you have to do the work and it's as shitty as it is and as horrible as, as it is. Mm. And he's had times where he's he's hidden particular things from me because he was like, oh, I know if I told you I would have had to go back and talk to like his, his counsellor and he just didn't want to have to start the whole cycle again. It's like mm. this is what it is. It'll always be this. There'll be times yeah. in your life where it will, it'll rise up again and you'll have to address it, um, you know, and I know I've had times where I've find it, found it very difficult to hide, you know, emotions or episodes or things that I'm going through. Um, and I sort of feel bad for that because I sort of think my kids shouldn't have to bear the burden of of, of my illness. Mm. But at the same time, I sort of think this is our reality, mm. you know, and this is what would have happened, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Everything was hidden and that's probably why, we have these issues with stigma and and not understanding because it was so hidden away. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a balance there that I oh, struggle definitely. with at times. But I I think it is important that people know, and yeah. your kids know. Um, maybe not to see it in all its glory, but you no. know. What I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's finding that balance between, you know, wanting to show. Okay, this is this is what it is. This is the reality versus making it their problem to solve. Yeah, you know, exactly. we definitely yes. don't want to do that, exactly. but we don't yeah. want to pretend that these things don't exist because yeah. then, but you know, you're modeling to your son that if this does happen, you know, he knows where to turn. You are yeah. a safe place to turn to. He will, un- you, he knows that you will understand. Mm. And, you know, he's obviously seen you work on your mental health. So he knows, okay, I can do it too. And that that is the best thing you can give to your kids honestly Mm. it really is and you know it's not perfect or it's not (laughs) ideal but you're not making it your son's problem but you're showing him that it's okay to have mental ill health and that it's okay to talk about mental health and that we should be doing that that's the Mm. only should I'll ever say in my (laughs) life is that we should be talking about (laughs) mental health (laughs) yes should be more of it. Yes. Oh, dear. Yeah, and I think, like, uh, teenage t- teenage years are, you know, oh, notoriously difficult to navigate regardless yeah. of, mm. of any other issues you've got. So it's like, I don't know, just talking, keeping the communication lines open is skills. massive. Absolutely. Yes. Any yes. kid will benefit from skills to help yep. their emotional and mental health, even if they have a, no mental illness. Any mm. of those skills are so valuable to any yeah. teenager because yeah it's that hormonal thing yeah, you know we want to yeah. sit there and say oh it all has a reason sometimes it doesn't sometimes yeah. it's just our hormones go in flux and that's what yeah. had happened to me as a kid I yeah. had you know the the anxiety as a you know as a child but then when you get to your teenage years hormones really kick in and it takes it to another level you know mm-hmm. and yeah. it's all that's when you know the OCD and things really set in or those intrusive thoughts, you can't really ignore mm-hmm. them anymore. Yeah, um, and it can be such a scary time because you're dealing absolutely. with, you know, physical changes to your body and then, you know, emotional and then mental and it's like, what's going on and who can yeah. I talk to and all this sort of stuff comes up. It's just, yeah, yeah. geez. Uh, and then throw I feel in for social kids, media. Truly. Oh, yeah. Buggers these days. Oh, yeah. Lord. I got out of it easy without having phones <laughs> and technology back in yeah. the day. Of oh, course. Gosh. And, I mean, I... 
I don't understand. I mean, this is probably going off topic, but there is such an attitude in society that what teenagers go through isn't real or it's not important and, mm. oh, but, you know, you'll get over it. It's, you know, and that attitude is so damaging. Yeah. I don't get it. Like we're so quick to belittle kids. And yes, you know, they might have their heart broken for the first time and it's, you know, yes, it's different to, you know, something else you might go through as an adult, but that doesn't make mm. it any less you know it's important for them and yeah Yeah. at that time in their life that is their biggest thing that's all they can think about and And for us to to shut that down yeah I I really dislike that that attitude that a lot of people have and you see it a lot on social media that oh Mm. teenage but anyway that that's going off topic but yeah Yeah, that's frustrating yeah and that that all contributes to 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 mental unwellness so oh of course and then you get to motherhood and you're not meant to complain because everyone's a mother and everyone does it and blah 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 like you know we if we can actually support our kids when they're going through that hard stuff as Mm. kids as teenagers just yeah it might not prevent a mental health episode but it might just make it less severe it might make it Mm. easier to get through might make it quicker for them to you know overcome I guess it yeah yeah anyway I'm yeah no no my my first degree was actually originally in early childhood Um, ah right yep so yeah that was yeah it's always been important to me to see Mm -hmm. kids to see teenagers as people as valid they have emotions and that's okay they're not yeah yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's that's no, another time. That's good. That's, I'm glad you brought that up because it is important. Yeah, and that, and I'm sure there's a lot of mums listening that have you know children of different ages. So mm. you know, it's good to share what you know. Actually, speaking of this, I'm going off topic again, but Please. um, my my Alex, my 14 year old, um, the other day made a decision that wasn't what we would have agreed with, and sure. it, and I said to my husband, we can't we can't punish him too much for this because his brain physically hasn't evolved to the point where Mm. he can make decisions the same way we can. And I just thought, gee whiz, as a society, we've come a long way because that's not how my parents would have treated me. (laughs) No. No. You should have known better. What were you thinking? Well, my uh, frontal, prefrontal cortex hasn't (laughs) evolved yet. So. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to negotiate. I mean, our, parents probably did the same you know it's either (laughs) you you treat us as kids all throughout no you're just a kid you can't make a decision or on the other extreme you know you want to be treated like an adult why aren't you acting like an adult you know (laughs) it's those two extremes that you know you're either treating them like a kid or you're expecting them to behave like an adult we (laughs) need to do better at treating them or meeting them where they're at yeah and I think we are getting better yeah oh yeah yeah but yeah, there's so much science out there now that tells us this stuff. Like I was, mm. the reason I, it's in front of in front of my mind. It's in your frontal lobe. <laughs> um, pardon the pun. Um, I was on, listening to the radio last night, and there was this this um, I don't know what they were talking about to start with, but then they got onto the brain, and they said that your brain evolves or matures from the back to the front like it, it's that's what we know and it's like oh my god no wonder I made foolish decisions as a teenager <laughs> like it just it, it there the science is there to back it you know and you I don't know it's you can't argue with that I feel like you know we've got all these other tools and these this information at our, at our disposal now to be able to treat you know people of different ages with appropriate you know mm. responses you know um 
And that's why uh, I'm, ex- I'm excited to see the next generation grow up. Because oh, I think yes. they'll have yeah. been parented very differently. And I'm, I'm actually looking for, I'm hoping, I'm hopeful for them that they, I don't know, that things are better for them, that they're yeah. easier for them. That's all you want for your kids. You want what's better for them, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that's fair enough. Um, can you just give me a sec? I've just heard a knock on my door. Oh, sure, please. Sorry, Rebecca. Come no in. worries. Hello, darling. How are you going with it? I'm going really good. <laughs> Do you want to come say hello? Yeah. This is Rebecca. Can you say hello, Rebecca? Hello. hello. This nice is, to meet you. This is Digby. This hello. is my little oh, little kid. Hi. Oh, he's a champ. He's so funny. He often does call in and say hello to people. Yeah. Yes, shut the door. He's going, yeah, I am. <laughs> good. Oh, dear. And thank you for this space. I think it's so important we talk about, you know, not just creativity, but as a mother, you know, being able to, because that's, you know, that's the job being a mum. We're meant to do that 100% of the time and yet Mm -hmm. we're people. Yeah. (laughs) So being able to talk about, you know, how we find that balance or whether we can actually find that balance yeah. or how we do it, you know. Exactly. Being yeah. able to talk about that I think is so important because there is still so much guilt. There is still so much shame if you're, you know, oh, I could be doing more or I should be doing more or, oh, but that mm-hmm. person's doing that. Why aren't I, you know, and we beat ourselves yeah. up and at what cost, you know. Yeah. So I good on you for doing this and oh, thank you. encouraging all of us really to, Keep doing what feels right. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> oh, dear. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention or share? And you, you did say about you're heading back to work, but this isn't going to stop for you. This is a this is your passion and you're going to keep doing yeah. this, which Look, is awesome. I wanna I wanna get to a point obviously where I can phase out of you know, the nine to five and I can work on this, I guess, full time and, you know, get paid to work on it full time. <laughs> that would be the goal. And I mean, I've got my little, it's like a mini vision board, I'd say. Like it's got yeah. all my plans. Like I want to write a book, you know, finally. Yeah. <laughs> One that's not crap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to, yeah, I want to keep working in this field, whatever that looks like, whether it's also pumping out workbooks, like mm-hmm. coming from my background with journaling or storytelling and being able to, you know, facilitate, you know, yes, it's not a cure and God, I would never market it as a cure, but okay, here's something that we can maybe work on that might, it helped me, hopefully helps you a little bit too. Like that's mm-hmm. the stuff I would love to be doing, doing the podcast, doing the social media stuff, yeah, just those kind of digital 
work you know here's some journaling prompts was that like something like that yeah, you know yeah. I'd love to just phase out of the nine to five and be able to focus on this because I I love sharing these stories you know I I was really worried when I started podcasting and interviewing people but the more I'm doing it the more I realize yeah like as much as it's sad and it's confronting like just mm. hearing those stories and knowing that someone out there is actually trusting me yeah. with their story, with their vulnerable experience just means the world. And mm -hmm. I don't take that lightly. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I want to be able to do that justice and I want to be able to help them, you know, be able to facilitate the sharing of that story. Cause I know that's not easy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But also help other people that they're not alone. So mm. if I can somehow figure out a way to make this, work yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. make this an actual job so to say then I'll do it and hopefully one day I'll see myself as a creative <laughs> I still see myself as that organized planner because that's that was so indoctrinated in me it's what I did to mm -hmm. function in this world I guess up until this point um yeah. and maybe I'll just have to find a balance between the two parts of myself but yeah mm -hmm. one day um I'm hoping that that'll be what I can do and can work in order to facilitate that, I guess. Mm. Oh, good on you. I really hope you do. I just, <laughs> that would be so awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It's no, been so lovely to talk to you and to meet you and to talk face-to-face. -face. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, I saw your story submission for my podcast. I was like, when can I message her to say she can come on my podcast? I feel like oh. I have to go on yours first because oh. we've been trying to organise this have for trying. a month or so. Oh, but, dear. Yeah. No, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I'd love to share your story too, if you're comfortable, obviously. Oh, absolutely. It would be it'd be a pleasure. I'd be honoured to, actually. It would be, yeah, thank well, you. We can, we can negotiate that and organise <laughs> that. <laughs> oh, dear. That. No, good on you. Thank you. The music you heard featured on today's episode was from Alemjo, which is my new age ambient music trio comprised of myself, my sister Emma Anderson and her husband John. If you'd like to hear more, you can find a link to us in the show notes. Thanks for your company today. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love you to consider leaving us a review, following or subscribing to the podcast, or even sharing it with a friend you think might be interested. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please get in touch with us via the link in the show notes. I'll catch you again next week for another chat with an artistic mum. <laughs>